And it's a good thing because those are the last words of the Bible. We don't have anywhere else to go. So, Revelation 22 this morning. If you have your Bibles, feel free to take those out and open to Revelation 22. If you don't, don't worry. We have the text that we'll be reading this morning there on your handout. Before we begin, let me apologize for my voice. I, I get that it sounds nasally and whatever else. I've got a cold, so... Um, you know, you'll, you'll probably suffer a little bit that this morning. Um, uh, a couple of things before we start. I, I want to give you some heads up about the spring. So um, in January, late January probably, we're coordinating the start date still. I think Elaine is frustrated that we're not there yet. But um, uh, Paul and I are talking about when to start and when's the best time to start because it matters when we end as well. Um, but we're going to study uh, a book in the Bible that's probably the closest thing to Revelation uh, that is, uh, is present in the Scripture, especially the final six chapters. Anybody want to guess what it is? Daniel. Good, good. Yeah, 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 Daniel. Y'all knew it pretty well. So um, it's the story of Daniel, and if you don't know that story, um, come next semester. If you know that story, come anyway. Um, Daniel's a story of God... Um, essentially allowing his people to be taken into captivity into the the pagan world of Babylon, the empire of Babylon. And so it's about what faith looks like under the pressure of living in a foreign place. You know, our our, our theme this this year has been sojourners, sojourning um, toward an enduring city. And and Daniel's a great example of that. And so um, it's what does faith look like in a faithless world? Um, sort of the, the things that we'll hit on next semester are things like integrity, uh, culture, work, um, uh, friendship, faithfulness, and of course always the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I, I think especially for men to think about what it looks like to engage and yet also to be faithful in who God has called you to be, I think it'll allow us to get into some things that will be extremely timely uh, for us. I also want to say this, if you ever have feedback, this is the last one, but you, you don't have to wait to the last time we meet every semester. I call it semesters, I have no better word for it. Um, every fall, every spring. Um, please share your feedback with us. We would love to hear from you. Um, if you have anything that you think we ought to think more about, anything that we ought to emphasize more, um, let us know. We do have like a lay leadership team that I'd love to introduce to you this morning uh, for those who are here. Uh, Peter Tippin, raise your hand. There's Peter over there. Josh Cortez. Say hi, Josh. Carson Hooks. Where's Carson? Tracy Taylor. There's Tracy and Michael Denton, who I don't see this morning. But um, uh, keep your hands raised for a moment. Yeah. So really, if you have any complaints, go to them. You know, and they're responsible for fielding those complaints and for making sure that nothing ever gets back to us and all is resolved well. Um, now on to Revelation 22. I want you to remember where we've come from a little bit uh, this morning. Um, it's been, a, it's been a, a strange trip, hasn't it? I mean, um, I, I hope that as we leave here with Revelation, you have a better sense of the big picture of the book and that you're not quite as intimidated in terms of reading it. Remember the beginning of Revelation, it says that, that anyone who hears these words and reads these words and obeys these words, you'll be blessed. And really, that's the hope, is that you'll engage this book as you would any other book, like you do the Psalms or the Gospels, and you'll be blessed in the integrating of this sort of imaginative book into your own life as a Christian. Remember, Revelation is meant to form for you a Christian imagination, to imagine the world from the point of view uh, of God himself. 
And it's no accident this morning that we finish here in Revelation 22 with the words that we do, because Revelation 22, as you'll soon see, you may know already, is really just a revisiting of the opening chapters of the Bible. So the story of the Bible is one story. The story of God's love begins in Genesis 1 and 2 in a garden called Eden. And the story of his love ends, it's consummated, it's finished in this garden city that comes down from heaven called the New Jerusalem. And everything in between, all the prophecies and the parables and the poetry, um, all the commandments and the stories, all the work that you'll set your hands to do this morning, all of it gains significance in light of these two bookends. Let's read now the final words of the Bible. Revelation, I'm going to start in uh, chapter 21, verse 22. Read the final vision through 22.7, then I'm going to skip to the very final words in 22.14 through 21. John writes, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by its gates. Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life come without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from these words the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our morning together. Um, we pray that this would, uh, our time with you this morning would set the tone for our days, O oh Lord, that 
um, that you would so embed your word in our own hearts that it would flower and bear fruit in the people that we meet with today, uh, the work that you've given our hands to do, uh, our families, our friends. Father, um, we pray, God, that, uh, that you would do what you've said you would do, that you would bless us in the reading and hearing of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to share a short video with you this morning. Um, I'm always a little nervous in doing this. That will f- kind of set the tone and frame our passage for. Some of you may have seen this before. And the star of the video is a young boy named Mason Smith. Okay, Mason is a member of our church. Some of you know Mason well. You've held him in the nursery. You've watched him grow up. You've been with him in twists and turns. His dad, John David, is here with us, I think, this morning. There's John David. Raise your hand, John David. You're in the video, too. Everybody's going to know it. So, um, and this is about a special experience for Mason, and it's sort of explaining the video. I'll let it play for a few minutes here, okay? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for tonight's ceremonial first pitch. Dodger Blue Wishes is a program designed to inspire and create an unforgettable stadium experience for Dodger fans facing serious health conditions or major milestones. Tonight we're very excited to have with us seven-year-old Mason Smith, who with his family has come all the way from Dallas to be with us tonight. Mason was born with infantile glaucoma and has had many eye surgeries to correct it. He's been doing well until just a few days before last Christmas when he suffered an accident which severely damaged his left eye. <coughs> After multiple surgeries, doctors had to remove that eye in June. Parents tell us, though, that this has not slowed him down one bit. This October, it received his permanent prosthetic. Mason loves sports, especially baseball and the Dodgers. In fact, he wore a Clayton Kershaw jersey during his last surgery. Mason, the Dodgers, thank you for being a great fan, and we wish you all the best. Now let's see that pitch. And catching for Mason is Clayton Kershaw. Uh, pretty good, huh? <laughs> One more replay. There you go. Look at that. Okay, there's more. Um, uh, they get to go and, uh, and uh, the whole family goes out there, John, David, and Cindy. Um, uh, but I'll just cut it short there. A um, couple things. Number one, how about the first pitch? Pretty good. You know, they tell you don't bounce, don't bounce the ball. Don't bounce the ball. And, and uh, Mason was able to do that without bouncing it at all and threw it right over the plate. Um, pretty strong. I think it's uh, there's a, sort of an amazing piece of background information to that story. Mason uh, loves uh, Clayton Kershaw, uh, loves the Dodgers. Um, at one point, I think it was either before, was it after the surgery, John David, when he told you? It was before the surgery. Before he went into the surgery, um, he told uh, Cindy and John David, he said, um, I'm going to throw the first pitch out at a, at a Dodgers game one day. You know, this is before surgery. And, of course, John David and Cindy are like, you know, don't, don't want to crush his hopes before surgery, right? And, um, you know, pretty high expectations. And, um, but don't see in reality how any of that's ever going to happen. And that was his, that was his comment. I'm going I'm to throw the first pitch out. And sure enough, 
they had a, uh, a contact in Houston, not, not in L.A., that set it up. Houston, I think they were playing the Astros in this game, right? And a contact in Houston set it up. And so we have a little prophet in our hands who declared that it would be so, and it was so. Um, he threw the first pitch out. I want to show you that video because even if you don't know Mason, it's a pretty special like, event, isn't it? I mean, you can watch the image of that scene and know that, you know, uh, what's taking place, even with just a little information, is really, really cool and really special. But imagine, um, imagine if you do know him. Imagine if you've been with him and you've seen the highs and lows of this family, if you've, uh, if you've prayed for Mason as he's walked through the surgeries that he's had, um, if you've watched Mason grow up, if you've had him um, uh, as a teacher or held him in the nursery. You know, the image itself is pretty special, but having a connection to the story behind the image is what elevates this scene to a whole new level in terms of gratification. Uh, the same would be true of a wedding. You can walk into any wedding, I mean most weddings, right, and, and you can appreciate the beauty of the scene at hand, but if you know the couple, if the couple met at your house, if you watch their story unfold, if you counsel them at some point, how much more special is that particular occasion for an observer who's watching it at that level? Some of you probably watched the Cubs celebration recently, right? The Cubs finally won the World Series, and, and I sat up and watched that as an admirer of, of what was going on and uh, thought that the history of it was pretty special, but can you imagine the Cubs fans who have endured 60 years of futility with season tickets? How much, okay, we got some here, okay. Um, can you imagine how much deeper the joy of someone who has felt what that scene, the story behind that scene that led to that moment in the end. And what I want you to see is it's not just the image alone right here. It's our connection to the story behind the image, behind the consummation of a moment that gives that moment deep and abiding worth in our lives, that gives it lasting weight and significance for us. Now I say that all to frame our passage this morning. You can certainly read the final chapter of the Bible and you can just read it this morning and appreciate the beauty of what's going on. But to really understand the weight and consequence of what John is seeing, to understand how John must have felt to see what he saw, and to understand what the original readers of Revelation must have felt to receive this image themselves, you have to connect with the story behind the final scene. To connect with all that the Bible has said about creation, what the Bible has said about God's love, what the Bible has said all along about sin and about death and about condemnation and about hell. What the Bible has said about grace and forgiveness and restoration. Because if you don't connect with those things, then this final scene will just be another pretty happy ending, you know, to a book. But if you do connect with those things, if you have sensed that the story of the Bible is somehow connected with your story, then I can assure you, you will read uh, the final scene this morning and say, yes, I want that. This is the city. This is the place of longing for me. Finally, finally, something or someone gets me. Another way to put it is this. Revelation 22 is not just the end of the Bible. Revelation 22 is the end of human longing. Revelation 22 is the consummation of a long search for pilgrims to be at rest and to find their true home. 
I want to talk about that this morning, and I want to do so by pointing out four longings specifically that find their fulfillment here in the final vision. And then I want to just take note briefly of how the Bible ends. Okay, Four particular longings that are important, I think, to every human being made in the image of God that find their specific fulfillment here at the end in Revelation 22. The first is the longing for a city. The longing for a city. You'll just notice throughout 21 and 22 that, that place is important in the, in the sort of in the words and the vision of John, it was important in the beginning. And that this place is called a city. Earlier in 21, we learned the name of the city. The city is called the New Jerusalem, and it has come down. It has not been built up by human hands. It has come down instead from heaven as a bride who has been adorned for her husband. Now, why is it important that we land here? That seems kind of a, a strange thing to say that we long for a city. Why is it important that God gives us a city in the end? What's the story behind the image? Well, if you go back, I mean, I said that, that really Revelation 22 is a commentary in many ways of the trajectory that is set in Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, God anticipates that the Garden of Eden will eventually become a city. That the garden itself will become a city. Well, how do we know that? Well, consider the two powers that God gives Adam and Eve. One is he gives them the power to multiply, to bear children, to bear offspring, to have generations, to increase in number. Then he also gives them the power to cultivate. So in other words, here the first human couple has the power to both extend their relationships, they can increase the population, and they can also extend culture. They can increase their enjoyment of the world that God has made. And what is it that a city comes to symbolize except those two powers at work on a much larger scale? You know, a city holds out to us the promise, or the hope at least, not the promise maybe, but the hope that we might be connected in a community of human variety. That we might be connected uh, to a place of human production and creativity. And all of these original longings are embedded in the original Garden of Eden. Now, if you know the, the sort of the story, how the story goes after Genesis 2, the fall happens in Genesis 3. And after Genesis 3, uh, man-made cities become these monuments in Scripture often to human pride and rebellion. And so the city that was sort of meant to be good all of a sudden becomes a city of Babel, right? This idolatrous city in which people are trying to create to, to be their own gods, and, and Babel is built up as a monument, a testament to the fact that we don't need God and it's destroyed. Here in Revelation, the city of Rome comes under attack. The city of Rome in Revelation is the great villain that occurs over and over and over. But just because of our own failure to build flourishing cities by our own hands, right, it shouldn't detract from the reality that we still long to be a part of a great city. There was an article in Newsweek last year entitled, Why Millennials Still Move to Cities. Why Millennials Still Move to Cities. And in the article, the author says this. He says, every ounce of logic says that technology should have whipped geography by now, flattening the world in Thomas Friedman's lexicon by allowing people to live anywhere and still engage in the global economy. If technology was truly living up to its promise, more and more people should be moving out of cities to telework from charming towns, 
and lakefront cottages. Instead, we are streaming to cities like ants to a drop popsicle. For the first time in history, you get the picture there, right? For the first time in history, more people globally now live in cities than outside of them. The best jobs are increasingly in the most dynamic cities and not anywhere else. And people seem to want to work at such jobs, believe it or not, in person. Technology could let us work remotely, yet we are choosing to fight traffic, to pay extravagant housing costs, and to put up with lots of people that we don't even like. <laughs> Why? Well, later in the article, the author writes, basically the only reason to clump together in cities is because we need people. It is the people. You know this, but the first thing called not good in the Bible in Genesis 2, way before sin, is aloneness. Everything is good in Genesis 1. Good, 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 very good. It is not good for man to be alone. What's the point? We need people. We need community and connection and culture and creativity. What, what Revelation is saying is here is the city that you long for coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I have a feeling that some of you are introverts in here and you sort of just dismiss me wholesale when I talked about people and cities, but don't worry. There's a garden in the middle of the city, the likes of which you've never seen before. And I'm sure that there are landscapes and places to explore that have been unexplored that will suit sort of your, your desire to have a farm or a ranch somewhere as well. Okay, right? Um, there is a garden in the middle of the city, but the place is a city itself. That's first, a longing for a city. The second one is a longing for healing. A longing for healing. Look at me at verse 2. John writes in 22.2, Also on either side of the river there was the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You know, one of the great promises of the New Jerusalem that, that you know, um, and the, I would say that carries weight throughout Scripture, and you certainly see this in the Gospels, don't you? With what Jesus spends most of his time doing in healing. One of the great promises of the New Jerusalem is a medicinal promise. It's a medicinal promise. And that is that God intends to and wants to heal the pain of human history. And here John says, here is a tree. Here is a tree that is always fed from a river that flows from the throne of God itself. And that tree is always appropriately in bloom. And the leaves of that tree can heal anything. So I just want you to try to imagine the possibilities for a moment this morning, because remember, Revelation is an exercise in the imagination. Imagine for a moment this morning a mother who has cried herself to sleep for years because of the loss of one of her children. Imagine a man who has been tormented by how his foolish choices have alienated him from the people that he loves and how it's cost him time with those people that he can no longer get back. Imagine a young girl who is confined to a wheelchair. She's been there since birth. She could never walk or talk on her own because she suffered some debilitating disease that she never asked for. Imagine with me a whole community, a whole people who have been driven out of their homelands, driven out of their place from the rapids of war having to leave everything in a moment's notice, everything behind, never to return. 
Now just for a moment, imagine each of these people going down to the river that flows from the throne of God. And they get to stop at the tree of life and they get to pick a leaf from the tree and they take it between their fingers and they put it up to their lips and they taste it. And in a moment, they are healed of whatever anguish has plagued them for however long it's been. Just to make it more personal for you this morning, can you imagine the tears that you have wept? Can you imagine the wounds that you have borne? The thoughts that you have carried? All the things that you've experienced that you should never have experienced? All the words that you've said that you can never get back? All the things that you've seen that you wish that you could unsee? Can you imagine walking over to the tree and picking a leaf and the, the medicine of that tree healing you wholesale? Healing your mind, healing your body, and healing your soul. That's the picture. And if you'll notice, the consequences of this tree are, are exactly, they are exactly the reversal of all that has come from eating the, the forbidden tree so long ago. And who is welcome to come to this tree? Do you see it? It's the nations. The nations in all their variety are welcome to come to this tree. The whole world is welcome to bring all of the particular maladies that people have suffered and to come to this tree in order to be healed. You know, we joke about wanting world peace for Christmas. What do you want for Christmas? Well, I just, I want world peace. <laughs> but that joke only works because the hope of something like this still continues as a sincere human longing. We want someone, we want something to come and to heal the world. And God says, I'm gonna put a tree in the middle of the city that can heal anything, anything that you long to be healed of. We long for a city, for connection. We long to be healed. What else? Next, I want you to see that we have a longing for significance that's answered in the city as well. A longing for significance, you might say it this way, a longing for power, for the right kind of power. Look at me again at verses 22, uh, verse 22, 5. This is how the vision ends. John writes that uh, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And what does it say at the very end? They will what? They will reign forever and ever. You ever wonder, what will we be doing forever and ever, right? What will we be doing in the new heavens and the new earth? Forever and ever, what will we be doing? Toga party in the clouds, playing harps. I'm going to disappoint you this morning if that was your vision of a good time. No, it says you'll be reigning and ruling. What does that mean? It means that you'll have responsibilities in the new Jerusalem. It means that, uh, that eternity is not some sort of grand vision of retirement from work. That there will be work to do. And if you're paying attention to Genesis 2, if you remember the language there, then we've really come full circle from what God said originally when he created us. Remember what he said? God created us male and female in his image to do what? To have dominion, to reign, to rule over the world. That is to cultivate and to steward and to form and to fill and to bless and to create. Frederick Nietzsche, who was no friend of Christianity, has a great thought that's sort of a marred half-truth, but you know, I think it's worth our time. 
I, I appreciate what he says in it. Um, he absolutizes it, which you know, makes it into an idol. But he says this, all joy, all human joy basically boils down to this. All human joy comes from when we feel our powers expanding. All human joy comes from when you feel your power expanding. Now look, that's idolatry taken in and of itself. But put that for a moment in the proper perspective in the kingdom of God, under the reign of God, in the grace of God. And you might say, you know what? I can feel joy. I I can see that, right? There is something in me that deeply wants to expand, to grow, to reach, to accomplish. Are we not happy and should we not celebrate when something good gets done under our oversight? When some good is brought about, when our powers expand and are accomplished? That's what Nietzsche's getting at. And the Bible's saying, yeah, that's good. I've been saying it for thousands of years. From the beginning, you were made to have dominion to rule, and this is what you'll be doing forever and ever. And just a footnote on that this morning. Um, you know, we, we harp on this a lot, but I want you to really get this, right? Um, we often think about, look, there is, there, is, there is the world of discipleship, which is this, and then there's the, other, there's, there's the rest of life out there. Well, that's not true. <laughs> All of life is God's. We talk about the sacred, the sacred secular divide coming down that you begin to see that God cares about what you do when you leave here deeply, and that's your discipleship when you walk out of this room every morning. What I want you to see is, is this. If work matters, if your work matters at the beginning of creation, and if your work matters at the, at the, end, at the beginning of, at the end of redemption, okay, in, in Genesis 2 and Revelation 22, then doesn't it stand to reason that all the in-between, and all the in-between, that the work that you do matters deeply to God. It's one of the reasons this morning I wanted us to reach back and to read parts of chapter 21. At the end of chapter 21, what is it that gets brought into the New Jerusalem? What gets brought in? What does it say? The honor and the glory of the nations. Well, what is that? What is the honor and the glory of the nations? The honor and the glory of the nations is human culture, human achievement, brought about by human effort, human toil and sweat, according to and refined by the grace of God. And I just want to say this morning, I want you to appreciate this for a moment, that, that in the New Jerusalem, there is not some polarization between God's grace and human achievement. Neither one are diminished. The new Jerusalem has to come down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. It can't be built up from the ground up. But God welcomes all our achievements into it where they'll stand for eternity. In other words, you'll do things today. You'll have opportunities today, not just by sharing the gospel, which you should do, by the way, but just by doing good work. It will stand for all eternity, refined by God. The glory of what we do will be brought into the new Jerusalem. Our achievements matter. You want a city, you want healing, we want power and significance. This vision answers those things. The last thing I want you to see this morning is, you know, certainly the most important throughout Revelation. Get it over and over again, and that is the longing that we all have for God's presence. The longing that we all have for God's presence. What is at the center of the New Jerusalem? What's at the center of the New Jerusalem? It's the same thing that's been at the center of all the visions in Revelation since Revelation 4 when John first went into heaven. It is the throne of God. The river flows down from that. The throne of God and the throne of the Lamb. And notice there that John sort of closes his vision by saying, look, 
I don't know that you can appreciate this at this point. It's really rare. <laughs> but you'll see God face to face. Imagine that for a moment. That you will see him face to face. You will walk with him as Adam and Eve walk with him in the garden. You will worship him without barriers. Um, uh, um, you will belong to him without any separation. And what John is saying is the restlessness. You know it. It's, you feel it this morning. We all feel it. The restlessness that we have all felt. That we all feel in search of something that will fill... The, look, you know it because what do you do when you get restless? You, I mean, not all of you do this, but I do this. You go find something to buy, right? You go on Amazon and you, you like do research for the best thing at the cheapest prices and all of a sudden you click it and all of a sudden you feel better for 10 minutes. You know, that restlessness, the restlessness that we feel that gets expressed in some way will finally be satiated forever. Something God himself will fill the God-shaped hole inside of us. And John says the light of God's presence will shine on you forever. And I think it's important to note this morning what is so obviously missing here in Revelation 22 that was present in the Garden of Eden. You know, almost everything, if you go back and read Genesis 2, is present here uh, in this, the city of New Jerusalem except one thing. Anybody know, notice what's missing? The tree, well, the, the, yeah, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember that in Genesis 2? The tree of life is here. The sacramental tree of life is here. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is missing. Why? Why is it missing? It's missing because the trial of obedience is finally over. The test has been passed. There is no more temptation. And I want you to see this too. What is present in the city? In the place of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was nowhere to be found in Eden. It's the lamb that was slain. Nowhere to be found in Eden. Everywhere to be found in the New Jerusalem. George Herbert, who's an Anglican priest who lived hundreds of years ago, has this beautiful verse in one of his poems that goes like this. It's from Jesus' point of view of the cross. Here's what he writes. He says, all, he says, O all ye who pass by, behold and see. Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all, but only me. Was there ever a grief like mine? What's Herbert saying? Herbert is saying that, that we get something. We get this new city. Because Jesus gave something up. That the only reason that we get to go and to taste of the tree of life is because Jesus himself climbed the tree of death. That the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is gone. But only because a slain lamb has taken its place. Who are the citizens of the New Jerusalem? Who are the citizens in the final vision? It's not the good people. It's not the pretty people. It's not the powerful people. It's the people who say, yes, I will receive what has come down from heaven for me. I will follow the one who climbed the tree of death so that I might eat of the tree of life. A city, connection, right? Healing. 
significance. The presence of God. Do you connect with those things? Don't you long for those things in your life? Do you want those things? Imagine John seeing those things. Here's how he ends the letter after seeing that vision. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Listen. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And notice what all that John can say at the very end. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come down and bring these things to bear in my life and on your world. Come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you, O oh Lord, that, that what you have created in us, what you have given to us, as you've made us in your image, even those things that sin has marred in our lives that you intend to resolve and to finish and to consummate in the new Jerusalem came, come down from heaven. Oh God, thank you for your Son um, who washes us, who cleanses us so that we might enter and taste of the tree of life. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us great joy as we go out today, that you would cause us to be a people who are not anxious or fearful, but people who are courageous, um, who love well, um, uh, because we've been loved by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.